Uh, welcome to Talk Pop C. Today we'll talk about art as cognition. My name is Vincent Palouse and I'm joined by... Jesse Taylor Cruz. What does art mean to you? Anything that moves you in some way. I stole that from Shia LaBeouf, by the way. <laughs> That's, you know, Shia LaBeouf, interesting person. So, yeah. I, I think he, like, pulled out one of his teeth for... He, like, pulled out... That's a yeah for like a movie role for or movie, something, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And didn't he get a finger cut off or something like that? Did he cut a finger off too? He got Did one. He? One was cut off during some filming, I think. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Going in for his art. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> but so 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 art art as anything that moves you. That's a. I mean, that's such a good segue to. Okay. Well, what do you think about art as cognition? Well, I guess how would you define cognition before I continue? Like, what is our working definition of what cognition means? Something to do with thinking. Let's stick with that. Something to do with thinking. I like that. Okay. It's simple, but it basically covers it. So maybe art is like this like impetus that gets you to think. And not just for the viewer of the art, but the person creating the art too. Do you think... So, I, I mean, in the last conversation I was having, um, the person drew a pretty strong... I felt like they were drawing a distinction, a pretty strong distinction between the sort of experience the person has appreciating and the sort of experience they have creating. Um, what do you think about that? I think it's too complex of a topic to just have such a s sharp distinction, I think. And maybe it depends on the artist. Maybe it depends on the artist, because I feel like at least in terms of, I don't know, like writing poetry, for instance, I guess... Okay, then I guess I'll just speak for myself then. When I write certain poems, I guess. So I guess it depends on the art piece as well. But when I write certain poems, I feel like the things, the impetus driving the piece is kind of the same type of thing. I'm hoping that the reader of the poem then thinks or feels. So it's kind of like you're like in a conversation with them, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So it's like in some cases, maybe yes. Like maybe it's the artist's intent for whoever is consuming their art to kind of meet them where they are. But then in other cases, then yeah, sharp distinction. But I don't think necessarily. Could you talk more about your view on this process of creation and how it relates to cognition? Okay, I'd say so immediately, immediately my mind jumped to, uh, to Aristotle. <laughs> and... Uh, I feel like the way cognition relates to the process of creation depends on maybe what is being created and why it's being created. Like, is it being created for the sake of itself or is it being created for the sake of something else? And if it's for the sake of itself, then I feel like there's com something completely different going on. Like with, with poetry, like I feel like it's different if I'm writing something that I never intend for anybody else to see. Mm. <laughs> then that cognitive process is definitely going to be different mm -hmm. okay different in some ways than if I were creating something that I knew was going to be consumed or if I knew I was creating it to you know what I mean like does that, yeah 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 no I I would be kind of a, a natural idea and tell me if this is not what you're saying but uh is the is the idea that uh you know maybe when you when we create for these kind of purposes 
other than just for creating that it's restricted in some way or yes yeah yeah like in um see when i when you saw me like debate for a second it was because i was like is that what i'm trying to say and at first i was like no that's not what i'm trying to say you can be unrestricted when you create for purposes other than just creating for the sake of creating but then i was like actually maybe there is like some sense of restriction where it's like when you're just creating for the sake of creating there's like this like boundless quality of what you can do or say yeah. I guess because you don't have to worry about judgment. You don't have to worry about criticism except self-criticism, of course, which yeah. matters or counts or whatever, or analysis or anything. You're just you're just creating to create. But then when you're creating to... like I guess when you, when you know that somebody else aside from you is going to be able to engage with this thing that you've created, that's when it's like... I feel like you take more care in making choices as you're creating. Right. There's the, there's probably this restrictive part, but there's also probably like sort of amplifying part as okay. well. Right. Like I, maybe if we'd, if someone just made a piece of art for themselves, they would not care to make it accessible to other people. Of course. Yes. Yeah, I agree with you that. Know, it's in there. That's not yeah. for anyone else, right? That's one reason I think it's so interesting whenever I read things. I can't think of an example right now just because I'm, I'm working on like a very little sleep. Um, but when I read works that were um, posthumously published where it's like, wow, they like clearly did not think anybody else was going to read yeah. this or listen to this in the case of artists, I guess. And it's just like. I'm sure there's probably a lot of stylistic things that are similar or things that are authentically them. And I feel weird using that word, but then you read it and you're like, wow, this, they were definitely in like a different state when they created this because it's, there's like a, like they're more willing to take risks maybe. Mm -hmm. Or like, if I think about when I'm writing things, there'll be some things where I'm like, Oh my gosh. Okay. I definitely cannot say this in this way because this, yeah. Because if somebody were to read this, they would need to know that I like was meticulous and researching and making sure that I dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and made sure to not be exclusionary in the way that I'm writing things. But then if it's just for me, it's like, I'm just going to say what comes to my mind. What sorts of things are we trying to communicate or how does communication relate to this sort of public art okay. on that gloss and then the other question is well how does it relate to is there a communicative aspect as well in the private one and if so sort of thing okay so a lot of questions okay art communication cognition okay i'm gonna give a different example and can i give an anecdote Please. so i forgot who translated it but I'll never forget the first time I read my least favorite translation of Lysistrata. Like, I'll never forget it. And looking back on it now, it's because I think that the way that the translator was trying to make the text more accessible was inappropriate. Because I think 
that they were not being charitable enough with their audience. Mm. And if, all right, so I guess an underlying assumption of this is that translated texts are pieces of art, I guess. But I remember feeling angry reading it. It was assigned to us in just like a random core um, classics class. That it was a class of like 300 students. It was huge. Okay, maybe it was like one. It was huge. I don't know. It was an auditorium. And I remember thinking, wow, like, this is a really great text to read. Like, I'm, I'm more interested in translations that are like pretty, like, to the Greek, you know? And so when I was reading this, I was like, what was the. What was the translator thinking when they made this? What was the professor thinking when they assigned us this text? And it's clear that they were trying to give us a text that was more accessible. And what's interesting to me is, like, what goes into the process of translating when they think that they're trying to make a text more accessible to people? And I think it has all to do with what they think the audience is capable of understanding. And I think that's where it gets tricky. So when we're talking about artist cognition, maybe the person that's creating just for themselves, they're able to be more unrestricted because they don't have to think about like, how is this going to be accessible? How are more people going to be able to understand what I'm talking about? How am I going to be able to reach these people? Because you don't have to worry about that. You know what you're capable of cognizing. You know how your beliefs are formed like this is for you Mm -hmm. that doesn't matter but then when you're creating art for other people it's like especially if you're specifically creating art that you want people to understand and engage with there's like all these added layers of like how can i make this the most accessible it's almost like how can i I don't want to say dilute, that sounds terrible, but like, not terrible, but you know what I mean? Like, how can I make my thoughts and my beliefs and my whatever is driving my art creation, how can I make it so that it's digestible to as many people as possible based on what that creator Mm -hmm. thinks other people are capable of even understanding? Mm -hmm. Maybe though, do you think this is the sort of thing where... You know, you can definitely go too far, like the case of the text you had, the text your class was assigned, right? Um, and it becomes uh, almost maybe condescending a little bit. Absolutely. You know, um, but yeah. but also, right, they couldn't just, if it's an intro to classic classics course, they can't just give you the Greek text either, right? I know. So yeah. what's the... So there's a, there's a, there's kind of, there's two vices. There's the vice of being too condescending mm-hmm. and there's the vice of assuming, assuming way too much. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, yeah. Back to Aristotle again, that uh, golden mean, like, <laughs> I guess that's what it comes down to when you're creating for other people to consume. Mm-hmm. I feel like, oh, so then maybe that's what it is when you're creating for the sake of creating, you don't have to restrict yourself to the confines of the mean. That's when you can decide to go wherever you want with it because you don't have to worry about anybody else understanding and comprehending what you're creating. I guess it is are some forms of art more accessible than others? 
I. Okay, pause. How are we defining art? Is it anything that moves you? I, I like you. I think you had a great. That was your definition at the beginning. That right? was Shia LaBeouf's definition oh, Shia LaBeouf's that I definition. borrowed. <laughs> that, that was great. I like. What that was one. that quote? Um, a good artist borrow, great artist steal. I'm a great artist. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. Good. Oh, great. I mean, yes. Yeah, <laughs> great. Yeah. So I, I like that one. I mean, um. So do you, do you think um. Like just the different, uh, the different forms and the very kind of most common sense understanding of forms, so like sculpture, painting. Uh-huh. Um, do you think different ones kind of require, I guess you could say, more and less charity with Oof. with the person? Or I, I I so charity charity is like in the right the the Charitable. eye of the interpreter. Yeah. But I guess someone who allows for accessibility is kind of the alternate the the virtue on the side of the creator. Um so do you think different form do you think the different forms require a different amount of like creators trying to make them accessible does the way the creator thinks about this depend on what the medium is that they're working with i guess is that what you're asking yes no i think their intended audience matters i think but then it does get messy because it's like just because it's in your, your intended audience doesn't mean that that's who's going to see your work mm-hmm. so i guess then that gets tricky do you think the the amount of accessibility you put into just a work of any kind of form, any genre, is uh, is to the atten- intended audience, or is it to the... I mean, surely, in a sense, it's to the intended audience because maybe you made it insofar as it's an intended audience. Um, but um, I don't, what do you think about Oof, this? I think it depends. Um, the first thing that I thought of was... It was like two things. Rap music and Solange's A Seat at the Table. <laughs> and, and what? Solange's album, A Seat at the Table. There's a song um, that's basically called For Us, By Us. And I think about this a lot because one of my, it's like one of my things I like to do is uh, analyze rap lyrics through the lens of like different philosophical theories to teach the philosophical theories through the hip hop music. So like, I feel like in some cases, like in those cases, it's like very clear that they're creating this art for an intended audience. It's like very clear. Mm-hmm. Ooh. But then it gets tricky. See, now I'm thinking about like cultural appropriation where it's like, that's where it gets really messy. Because um, it makes me think like, were these things that people are saying people are culturally appropriated? Were the originators of these ideas really sitting there like, this is only for the people that are a part of the culture that I'm a part of, that I'm doing this thing, or they create it for the sake of creating it. And now it's like, people like to make these sharp distinctions between like, this is for this, or this is for this. And then is that accessibility or it's like selective accessibility? Yesterday I was watching hip hop evolution. Oh, on Netflix, Netflix, the fourth season on, and there's an episode where it talks about in the kind of in the wake of the 
mass commercialization of hip-hop music, how there were these people who were trying to do like freestyle rapping in Washington Square Park on, and they had these cypher on. And like the whole idea with that, that was like a, the intended audience was just like the people who were there and that was it. And it was in kind of stark, stark contrast to, uh, to what had become mainstream. Mm -hmm. Um, and that just made me, what you said made me think of this. Um, that's yeah. That reminds me of this. I didn't read the article, but, um, it was a headline that I saw and it was, the only reason I didn't read the article because I was like, yeah, water is wet. But the article, the headline was something like uh, mainstream radio stations uh, purposely uh, refuse to play conscious hip hop. And it's like, it, like obviously, they refuse to play conscious hip hop. But it's that same kind of thing where it's like, because everything is becoming so just like mass produced and commodified and there are so many specific ideologies that are purposely perpetuated in the mainstream. There are going to be like ciphers. Those aren't going to be on whatever the, I was trying to come up with like a radio station, but I don't know any radio stations anymore. That's sad. Um, but like, that's not what's going to play on the radio station because they know that that type of rap music is going to get people thinking about certain things in different ways. That's why I'm forever thankful for System of Down. Yeah. They're directly responsible for my radicalization when I was like 12 years old. There and, you go. <laughs> and it's that kind of thing. It's like if they keep certain things, like if they, oh, see, and that's what's wild because some of the stuff is technically accessible if you know to look for it. But then is that accessible? No. Yeah. Because the things that they want to be accessible are going to be the things picked up and like hyper pushed around, I don't even know the word that I'm thinking of, um, like mass produced, mm -hmm. I guess, and made popular, normalized, and because they know that the things that are being discussed in those particular things are going to keep people, I don't know, numbed into passivity, I guess, or something. A lot of interesting stuff coming up. I, I immediately think of Rage Against the Machine also, um, but... um. <sighs> I, yeah, my so, heart just raced even just hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, role of capitalism in this, um, because like playing Oof. on the radio, this is a this is like a very capitalist thing, right? This is like yeah. a part of a business. So, I guess one other question would be on, um, you know, you have your system of a down, your rage against the machine. And then, you know, like, Chop Suey gets played on the radio for, like, <laughs> several months straight, nonstop. But they're not going to play the prison song. They're not going to play that one. But, um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and also Rage Against the Machine. So what, what happens when these things that are, that have kind of varying degrees of radicalness in them, what happens when these things get commodified? What do you think? What happens when these things get commodified? Or like, so in one sense, no. it was like a good thing because it's like a kind of an antidote a little bit to, uh, I don't know, insert, yeah, I know. insert other yeah. songs. Um, 
you know, um, so it has this kind of antidote aspect. But are there negatives as well, or is it only positive? Answering your question, it's like, yeah, the mass proliferation of these texts and this, these arts and et cetera, it is, it is like an antidote, but then not necessarily because it's like when people lack the one, I guess, one, the desire to even read them, which could arguably stem from a lack of understanding of what's actually going on in the text. Like, I started writing poetry so that I could help myself make sense of things that were going on. Like, I wasn't, f- I wasn't able to, like, connect with other people, really, or other things. Everything just seemed weird to me, I guess, you know? And, like, writing poetry was always this thing where it was just, like this is how I'm going to make sense of everything going on. I don't know how that's possible, but that's what's going on. And I feel like art for a lot of people would be like that. And the reason I said all this is because I said Starry Night. And like Van Gogh, like Pollock, and obviously like tons of other artists of other races that are not white and other genders that are not men also use art as a way of making sense of the things around them, but also as a way of coping with the things around them. And... I guess if we're talking about artist cognition again, I guess if you have like a very disordered mind, art can be a way of, I don't even want to say ordering. I don't like dichotomies. So it's not like an ordering versus disordering. It's more like a, like a (laughs) making sense of the manifold to like bring it to Kant where it's like, it might not even make sense, but it'll make things more bearable. Like it makes it hurt less makes it a little bit more tolerable. So a few years back, I taught an English class at Rikers Island in the women's jail. And I will never forget this. The first day that I got there, I'm walking to... So they have like a little classroom in the women's jail. And I'm walking, I'm walking on the way. There's this one hallway. I will never forget this, like as long as I live, because I was like livid. I'm walking down this hallway, and on the other side of the hallway, they were just, um, God, I was going to say transporting. Like, what the fuck? They're not goods. They're fucking... I hate how much this shit just gets embedded in just, like, our daily this language. But, like, there were people that were being walked from one part of the jail to another part of the jail. And they were passing by this mural on the wall, and it was this beautiful mural on the wall. And it's, like, a tree with flowers... And a whole bunch of black and brown women and babies. And the quote that was like on the wall said something like, I don't remember the exact words, but it was a bell hooks quote about art as it relates to freedom inside of Rikers Island in the women's jail on the way to the classroom. And I remember going into the classroom and we got into this really intense conversation. Oh my gosh. We, so the class was, it was like a range of ages. It was like the youngest person in the class was a 17 year old girl who got in there for fighting, but then couldn't afford bail. And then the oldest person in this class was like somewhere around like early forties, something like that. Most of them were mothers. We were just like talking. We were just having conversation. The class was um, on justice and Shakespeare. So we were like reading Shakespeare plays, but then doing activities that related it to the carceral system. So that was the class. And we got into a conversation about how, and I'd never known this before, but then it was like obvious once I'd heard it, but she was talking about how 
there were a couple of people that were in her bunk that she lived with. And she was like, there are some girls that are starting to do that thing where they'll start to purposely get in fights, to purposely start yelling at guards because they don't want to be released because they don't have a place to go. And as it gets closer to winter, they will literally do anything they can to be able to stay at Rikers. And like, and then like rewind, we were in a classroom, right? A classroom of maybe like nine people. And we had a conversation about how it was, it's so layered. Like, it's so layered. I'm even trying to figure out how to, like, zoom in on what I'm even trying to say. Because, like, only certain people had access to this classroom. And, oh, it was so wild. It was because all I could think about was just, like, well, one, we had a really big conversation about how, like, I could have just as easily been a student in that classroom just like given how shit works like there's a I mean there's a there was there's a big chance I could still be just like arrested and thrown into Rikers just because of how stuff works but like the fact that I walked past this beautiful mural in Rikers talking about art as freedom as I'm going to this classroom with these women that are trying to get their degree like one of the women in the class wanted to become like a lawyer but then I remember the last time I saw her she ended up like her release date got pushed because she ended up having like a breakdown. It was like a whole thing, but basically like you brought up the people like freezing to death outside. We literally live in a place where people are like, are so deprived of resources to just like live a basic comfortable, not even comfortable, just like a basic non fucking terrible life that they're like, I'm going to stare at Rikers. Yeah. I'm going to do everything I can to stay in Rikers. And it's like experience. This is all day one of me teaching this class and all of that. And then I remember leaving, passing this bell hooks mural again and just being like, what? Just, just about like, let's, let's try to finish like a thought or two. And then we are kind of running out of time. Ooh, okay. got you. I wonder how long we've been in here. Like 50 minutes. Whoa, I didn't even... <laughs> that means it's a good conversation. It's the best conversation, yeah. But yeah. So artist cognition. You can't even answer that question unless you talk about what art is and why it is that. What cognition is. Why it is that. Because it makes it seem as if art as a concept and cognition as a concept exist in a vacuum. And they don't. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> no, thank you for dealing with my ramblings. <laughs> thank you for a wonderful conversation. Thank you.